and he developed centers, 180 of them around the world. Um, and when somebody dies, and I've had a couple of people that I've known who've died recently, um, it gives pause, doesn't it? Um, it's, it's as if it opens a window um, between the worlds. And there's some sense that what seems stable and um, permanent, that's to say your life, um, isn't. Um, how many people are, here's another question, how many of you know someone relatively closely or a friend and family member who's died relatively recently? Raise your hand. Okay, that's about a third or a half. The other half, you don't have to wait that long. You'll be raising your hand also. <laughs> you will. I mean, that's the game. And it's so mysterious that it seems like we're permanent and life is permanent. Um, and it's not. And when we forget, we can go on automatic pilot. You know what I mean? Just go through our days as if things are going to last forever. And when we remember, there comes a sense of aliveness and care and poignancy and attention because this is it. Poem from my friend Alison Luderman, who's uh, in Oakland, a wonderful poet. This is from her book, See How We Almost Fly, called at the corner store. And she tells it because wrote it after her mom died. It was a new old Arab man behind the counter. She's living in Oakland. Skinny, brown, and eager. He greeted me like I was his prodigal daughter, as if we both came from the same world, somewhere warmer and more gracious than this foggy city. I was thirsty and alone, sick at heart, grief-soiled, exiled from family through my own faulty temperament, and his face lit up like I was his lost sheep wandering home, coming back to the freezer bins in front of the register, which were still and always filled with the same star heart ice cream sandwiches, back to the knobs of beef and packages of hot dogs in the butcher case and the dusty shelves strung with corn chips in immortal Jim Beam. I shuffled to the register and bought my bottled water, and he returned my change, beaming like it was a bright new bud on the just bursting open cherry trees, like I was everything precious struggling to grow, and he was blessing me as he handed me the change. Over the dirty counter, with its plastic tub of red licorice whips, five for a quarter. This old man, who didn't speak English, beamed out love to me, the iron week after my mother's death, so that when I emerged from his store, my whole cockeyed life, wonderful failure, glowed like a sunset after rain. Frustrated city dogs were yelping in their yards, mad with passion behind their chain-lick fences, and in the driveway of a peeling paint house, a woman and a girl danced to contagious reggae. Praise Allah! the Buddha, Kuan Yin, Jesus, Mary, and jealous old Jehovah, for eyes and hands of the Blessed One are everywhere. So here we have a great meditation master who died like all of us will. And I remember being with Stephen Levine at retreats that we'd taught about death and dying, and he'd ask sometimes, so how many of you are going to die? Not all the hands went up, you know. <laughs> <clears throat> and back in 1970, before some of you were born, Goenkis taught his first retreat. He was born a, a Hindu in what was sort of the greater British India that included Burma and Pakistan and all that as one great British colony. Um, born in, in Burma in a very wealthy Indian business family um, and went to see his teacher um, because he had migraines. And the teacher said, that's kind of a trivial reason to come to learn to meditate. I'll teach you. 
but there's something better than that. And he sat, and not only did he cure his migraines, and there's something in that. There's something about the wounded healer going in and saying, my life doesn't work quite right. Um, or bringing your wounds to the practices of transformation, and then discovering that you can change your life, that you are not just your wounds, that you are much bigger than that, that you can heal yourself in some profound way. And so he did. And then he said, I've got to pass this on to other people, and he began to teach in India. In 1970 he went back. And that first retreat that he had, Joseph, my colleagues Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg were there, Ramdas was there, Dan Goldman, who, the author of Emotional Intelligence, who's coming, Wes Nisker. It was like a who's who of who will be who, basically, <laughs> of Western Dharma and spirituality. And Goenka was the master. And on his retreats, which now are at all these centers around the world, they're silent 10-day meditation retreats. And they're very, very simple retreats. They're run all by volunteers. They work on donation. You come and you sit for a few days doing the practice of being aware of the breath. And then you do this practice that I'll describe of bringing attention into the body of mindfulness. And he spoke about his teachings, as we do here, what are called Dharma teachings. And Dharma is a Sanskrit word with many meanings. It means the truth. It also means the Tao or the way, the Dharma of things. It also means the teachings. It's a quite universal word. It's the universal truths or teachings behind things. Um, and he taught the Dharma of mindfulness as an invitation for people to experience for yourself what does it mean to bring attention to this life rather than to just live out of habit or automatic pilot. As the, as the most famous instructions from the Buddha begin, my friends, there's a most wonderful way for living beings to realize purification, overcome grief and sorrow, end pain and anxiety, travel the path of wisdom and compassion, and realize liberation. And this is the establishment of mindful awareness. And the reason that it's so wonderful and amazing is because it's an invitation to shift identity from being caught in the stories about he did and she did and who I am and what's called the small sense of self. You may have noticed it goes shopping with you and you know goes to work with you. <laughs> lives in your family some, from the small sense of self to step out of that and remember the mystery of life and that you are not just this limited small self idea that you have of yourself, but that you're part of something greater. And you know this. Everybody knows it in some way. It's almost as if there's the identity, the everyday identity that you have, which it functions fine and you need it. You need to remember your zip code and, you know, your password to get online, right? <laughs> but you also need to remember your Buddha nature or your true nature or something that's more eternal again. Story from one of my favorite books, Ram Dass's book, How Can I Help? If you don't know it, it's a real it's full of beautiful, beautiful stories and the ways that people are serving or trying to help or not. Um, let me see. I thought that was the right page, but it's not. Let me see if I can find it then. So this is somebody who's um, writing uh, about listening, paying attention, um, and who's been trained to do this as a profession. He said, there's a guy up on the roof right at the edge with his infant son in his arms and he's threatening to throw him off and then jump himself. So it's a horrible scene. Homicide, suicide happens a lot with children. Having, he's been having trouble with his wife, mother interfering, they lock him out, he's sleeping in the hallway and he's gone over the edge. That's where he is and I'm up there with him. 
I'm the final guy in the hostage recovery system we set up in New York, which I've been working in for eight years and heading up now. We haven't lost anybody in all these years. Now, if you're not able to see the big picture, how he's reacting, where and who your backup is, what's on the street, how long it's been going on, your own past experience, the chance that this is a new kind and certainly what's going on inside you from moment to moment. If you can't hold all of that and still be there listening to this guy in a way that he can feel your presence, chances are he's going to go over the edge. Something or someone is going to get killed. We've learned that. And he's in this very intense, complex public situation. Several of us are up there, a net in the street below, a lot going on all around. To say nothing of what's going on in him, the lack of self-esteem and manliness, feeling pushed around by his family, no work. But I can also recognize the overriding love he has for his child, who he's convinced would be better off dead than with those two. Sounds crazy, but it was real for him. So there's a lot for all of us to take in. And so I'm helping him get a sense, a bigger sense, an awareness of everything that's happening just so he has the picture of it all. I'm opening it up. And the more he does, the more he opens up to me. Turns out what concerns him most is that there be a hearing at family court to work out fair custody. He wants a hearing. But he won't accept a promise from me or a signed note. He tells us we got to get a lawyer and have it on legal paper. So we send out a car and find a local lawyer and get it for him. And when he feels he's got support from the system, he hands us the child. At that point, we have to jump him because we know that's the critical moment to prevent the suicide. He gets pissed at me because we were talking together like buddies and now this. And I have to give him the look of, that's how it is, kid. And some part of him knows it too. Some part understands. And so you hear the suffering and the dilemma, and you also hear the intelligence of the person who's tending to him, and somehow his making an ally of the wisdom in that man as well. So at the end, it's like, okay, I had to jump you, and you understand that's my job, and, and it was our job to get the kid back, and it was our job to save your life, and that's how it goes. And so we have this kind of remarkable um, multiple dimensions of consciousness. In one way, in human incarnation, we have the ordinary things that we do and tend to and care about, and they're important. In another way, um, that's not who you are. When you were born, I mean, who were you before you were born? You think that, you know, you just came in and you just, just that's how it started? You'll see. You'll, you'll, you'll find out. There's a spirit. I mean, anybody who's had a few kids, you know it's true. When you get one kid, it's like, oh, my kid, right? But when you have two, three, four of them, they're all different, and they're all weird in different ways, like you are. And then you begin to realize, oh, yeah, we don't just kind of come out all new, tabla rasa, but there's something that comes into this life, in this incarnation. And so all these beautiful teachings that are spreading now, the mindfulness industry that's happening, right? Business is good in the mindfulness industry, right? MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, the mindfulness movement, mindfulness in all these different ways, they really speak about the possibility for you, for us, to have this dimension of awareness that returns us back to the spirit that we really are and not just completely identified or lost in the small sense of self in the small game that we live. Do you know what I'm talking about? So the invitation from Goenka on retreats, just as we have our 10-day retreats, I'm starting one on Wednesday for 100 people in this beautiful retreat center we have. The invitation from Goenka is to come and experiment, try, what is it like to spend 10 days cultivating and developing this capacity of mindful presence. All these retreats that we have year-round here as well. And what made Goenka unique from early on as a teacher, now it's become more commonplace, 
is that he spoke about it as a science. He wouldn't teach it as Buddhism or try to make somebody into a Buddhist, spare your friends and family, a new religion. The old ones were hard enough, right? He said instead it is a science, as the Dalai Lama says, it's a science of mind, right? That you take this capacity to pay attention and begin to notice what happens when you feel the breath, the body sensations, the movement of mind, the emotions, not being lost in them, but with this capacity of awareness or mindfulness or loving awareness that I talked about. And now in the last several decades, there's been this explosion of scientific research on neuroplasticity and the capacities for interchange in neuroscience that shows that the trainings of mindful awareness bring inner resiliency in difficulty, ability to face difficult situations better, um, ability to regulate emotions, capacities to steady attention for students, ways to study better, um, faster healing the development or the bolstering of the immune function, um, the extension of telomerase, um, which uh, reduces aging process for people, all these cool things that happen, which we kind of knew intuitively, those of us doing it, because we felt better and clearer and freer and so forth. But it's kind of nice to have the science. And Goenka from early on was saying, it is a science. And because he taught it in that way, it could extend as he did to programs as we've also had in prisons, in businesses, in clinics, in, in all kinds of other circumstances, because it wasn't a religion, but rather it was humanity learning to pay attention with mind and heart together. And the new studies show that even not many hours, after six or eight hours of training, there are changes in gene expression. And there's measurable changes in you know the nervous system that they can track with an fMRI and things like that. It doesn't take that much. Now you have to keep periodically renewing it. You can't quite rest on your laurels, whatever they are. But um, if you do, if you do, it actually works. Try it. We'll see. So part of Goenka's brilliance was to create a very simple form that was non-religious and that was, he said, this is a science of mind. And to also to keep it very simple, um, to relate it both to the individual and the collective, we can all see, and scientists perhaps more clearly than anyone, that there's no technological solution to our world dilemmas. That climate change, continuing racism, warfare, um, all the idiocies that we're involved in that are human-created forms of suffering, where we have starving children here and grain elevators full of food over here, um, are caused not by the outer circumstances, and no amount of computers and technology and nanotechnology and biotechnology and all that is going to solve it. We have that, that we need a, a, a revolution, a science inwardly that transforms our sense of separation uh, or our addictions or our greed or our fears, because a lot of it is also very primitive, wired in kind of neurological tribal fears, that, that we learn as human beings to evolve inwardly as we have outwardly. And that's what we're called to do at this time. And Guenka understood this. And he said, well, if you want to do this, if you really want to change the world, you have to change the inner and outer world together. And so the invitation was to sit quietly first and compose yourself. Because it's hard to see clearly when it's chaotic in there. Have you noticed? <laughs> so the first part of his retreats, as we did tonight, was called anapana, which in Sanskrit or Pali means in and out. It was just feeling life breath and using the awareness of breath to steady and calm the attention. It's not that you become a great breather. It's that you become present to your life. And then after some days of several days of being aware of breath on his 10-day retreats, 
Then he shifts attention to sweep the awareness down, up and down through the body um, with the understanding as the Buddha had that the body, the foundation of mindfulness of the body is the place to connect body and mind for wisdom to grow. That line I've used for years from James Joyce where he wrote, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body, right? <laughs> that the, the invitation is actually to wed body and mind together and as you do, as you slowly move your attention through your body, at first you feel the places that are tight and tension releases and pain and all the things that are held in the body start to release. And as you do it over and over and over again, hour after hour, what happens is that the attention becomes more microscopic, if you will. You can feel more carefully. And then what seemed solid becomes more... Uh, a field of vibration or sensation, which is what you are. And the sense of being solid, which is a fiction, turns more into the sense of being a river. And that's, that's just a direct experience. The Buddhist teachings say that you are actually five rivers. A river of sense experience, always changing, sensations and sounds and sights. A river of feelings, have you noticed, that change moment to moment to moment? A river of perceptions. You think or see or, or imagine this is, you see, this is called that, this looks like that. That's a person, that's a man, that's a woman, that's a bay tree, or you know, that's the wall, that's the light. You have your way of organizing things. And moment after moment, there's new perceptions and ideas about them. A river of thoughts. You just sat for half an hour, 35 minutes. You saw that river. I know you did. Right? It carried you away a lot, right? And then a river of consciousness. So as you sit quietly in retreat or in your meditation and become more aware, you realize that you're not a fixed, solid being, but that you're part of the river of life, that who you are is a river. From the poet Hafez, the impermanence of the body, anicca, should give us great clarity, deepening the wonder in our senses and eyes of this mysterious existence we share and are surely just traveling through. If I were in the tavern tonight, Hafez would call for drinks. And the miraculous existence and impermanence of form always makes the illumined ones laugh and sing. You pay attention in the, the, the miraculous existence and impermanence, the ever-changing form. You are always changing. You think you know who you are, but that was a moment ago or a year ago. Or you think you know who someone else is. But they're not that. They are so much more than that. First, they're always changing. You know, it's not the same person you got in that relationship with. You know that's true, right? <laughs> and not only are they always changing, but what you see is like the tip of the iceberg of that magnificence of who they are really and of the spirit behind it all. So with the retreat, you start to feel the body and mind as a field of vibration. And this is a direct meditative experience, and sometimes it can get luminous and filled with light. Um, sometimes it feels atomic, and the, you, know, you, you get so attentive to it that you move your arm, or you pay attention to some part of your body, and it feels like tiny grains of sand or sparkles of vibration. Or I was reading, you know, modern physics super string theory and stuff like that. You actually become a field of vibration. And that's how you experience your body and mind. And you realize, oh, this, is, this river thing is actually experienced that way. And as you do, then you begin to relax and realize, oh, Instead of holding on, because when you hold on, you know what happens to a river. <laughs> a, it doesn't work. Or if it works a little bit, you get rope burn, basically, because it's changing. You can't hold on to something that's moving. So you relax and you find your ease or joy or peace in the midst of the ever-changing world. 
you also see how much the mind creates your experience. The Dhammapada's first verse says, all is mind made or mind is the forerunner. And you think, all right, that's kind of a nice sort of Indian idea, right? I mean, but things are solid. The Transamerica Pyramid and the Golden Gate Bridge and, you know, all the things that we know in this world, they're real, right? So I was at a conference recently in the city, quite a wonderful conference, um, called Being Human a few weeks ago, which was a combination of visionary neuroscientists, futurists, Dharma people, all looking at the evolution of human consciousness. Um, and a couple of the interesting presentations by David Eagleman and, and uh, Jeff uh, Thorpe um, were a bit about the future of the body and the senses. Uh, Jeff Thorpe was a, um, a data artist. Okay, talk about vibrations and field and so forth. And one of the things he put on the screen from his computer was a real-time image of um, the 500 major airports in the world on a long line. They have their little names, some of them. Um, and the fact that right now, as we're sitting here listening, there are more than a million people in the air in airplanes. So get that, okay, right? But this was takeoff and landing, so you'd see there'd be a bright spot for Bombay or for Dubai or New York or Frankfurt or something like that. The bright spots had more planes. And you'd see lines going in, oh, there one landed, line coming out. And it was like looking at this pulsing piece of music of all the planes taking off above and landing in from the bottom. And he was making art out of the million planes that are, or million people that are in planes in the air. And all of a sudden, instead of it feeling like some fixed thing that we're in, you could feel humanity moving and pulsing. So then David Eagleman got up, and he, one of the many things that he talked about was, he said, I'm going to talk about the future of biomechanic human things. He said, but I'm not going to talk about the future. I'm going to tell you about now. He said, so he started talking about cochlear implants and how people who hadn't been able to hear, certain ones anyway, were getting implants that would allow for the replacement of the drum or the anvil and stirrup or the various things that weren't working right in, in the cochlea to allow people to hear. That's cool. He started talking about exoskeletons and how the military had developed them You've seen them in the movies now, but military developed them for soldiers to be able to walk with greater strength. But now people who had not walked at all for years in wheelchairs because of spinal cord injury and so forth were putting on exoskeleton things and getting up out of their wheelchairs and being able to walk. Um, and he said, all right, so then we've got these retinal implants for people whose retinas have um, been destroyed. And we have a little, and it's like Google Glass, only cooler in a certain way, we have a little receptor um, that receives the light and then um, is connected to the optic nerve. But here's the, here's the really interesting part. The information from uh, a little video screen, basically, that goes to the optic nerve comes out as electrical um, bits and bytes, ones and zeros, which is sort of the the computer language that we've learned to organize data in from, from these kind of senses. But that's not what was normally fed to the optic nerve. From the retina, the optic nerve would get more biochemical impulses that would go up the optic nerve and changes in sodium-potassium balance and so forth. So they were wondering, all right, if we input into the optic nerve this um, ones and zeros, this pulses instead, what will the brain do? And he said within a few weeks, the brain started to make images, the mind of these people, and see, because it it's not really the senses, it's the mind that creates the pictures. You understand this? Plus, he said, then you could also say, I'd like to be able to extend the range. Could I see infrared as well? You know, like the people at night who have night vision for infrared glass. And I want to see um, ultra, you know, 
I want to see the ultraviolet in that too. And you could extend your sense range or you put in an ear implant and you say, I want to be able to hear high pitches like, you know, dogs and things. Or I want to hear low like the whales. And your senses then can be augmented and feed. And so when it says mind is the forerunner or mind creates the world, world is mind made, it actually is. You know, you... You don't see me. You, you're, you're retina gets some, you know, photons, and then it creates whatever I look like to you. We'll, we'll leave that anyway. <laughs> so, what happens when you come on retreat, or even when you begin to meditate and pay a deep attention, is the world that seems separate, I'm in here, you're out there, I'm a fixed person, starts to show itself as a river of experience that's organized by these processes of perception and so forth, um, but that you can't cling to or hold on to, that if you want to live wisely, you actually have to learn how to move with the river, how to flow, how to be the space of awareness that can respond to it rather than be fixed and stuck, because the more fixed and stuck you are, the more it turns out your body tightens, the mind suffers, and things are however you want them to be, they're not going to be exactly how you want them to be. So you sit quietly, and you start to see this, but of course, it's not that easy. And the Goenka retreats are particularly demanding, because they, they don't do much movement or walking meditation at all, and so you sit sometimes for long hours and don't move, and it's a little bit like, um, you know, going through the basic training or something like that, the Marine Corps. But anyway, and there you're sitting, minding your own business, and the thought comes along and says, think me. I'm a really good thought. I'm important, right? <laughs> or a sensation comes and it says, notice me. You know, I really want your attention. It tries to grab your attention, and they're very this demanding, and you notice that modern life people are, as one of the meditation masters I talked about, how does modern life look? He said to a meditation master, lost in thought. And people are just lost in, not really so present to the way things are. So you sit, and you notice the thoughts and the sensations, and what you start to notice is the tension of the body that needs to be released because it's built up over weeks and months in your jaw or your back or your shoulders, and you're just sitting minding your own business and they get tight. And it's not because you're meditating wrong, it's because it's all stored in there. Or you have the unfinished business of the heart. And you sit and you haven't had time to grieve a loss or feel the longing or the love that you didn't express or the call you didn't make, and the heart says, remember me, this is what matters. Or you simply notice, you know, the endless stream of what you should be doing, <laughs> right? Or the, or the, you know, reruns of commercials of what, how you should be. Julia Childs, who says in department stores, so much unnecessary kitchen equipment is bought indiscriminately by people who've just come in for men's underwear, right? <laughs> and the highest paid psychologists in America are working night and day to make images on your screen, and your, you know, on your computer and your magazine, to try and lure you to buy that stuff, right? So you see all that when you sit still, and the mind is like a wild horse or an you know, untrained monkey or something like that. Um, and when you sit, the layers start to open. Let's see where we are here. Yeah. So there's a story um, that I told, I guess, some months ago here, but I'll tell again, a short one. It is of a young woman who's in a princess, uh, a who's a princess in a, in a kingdom where they've come to some economic problems. Um, they have a rather large uh, um, national debt <laughs> in this kingdom, and no way to pay it off, and the king and queen are really worried, um, and the government has threatened to shut down. <laughs> they don't have the money to pay them. 
And so the king and queen decide that the best thing to do is to marry their daughter off to someone who has great wealth who can rescue the kingdom. Now it happens that the person or the being in the kingdom who has the greatest wealth is a dragon. Dragons have hordes of jewels and gold and so forth, so okay. You know how it is, it's your kid, but things, you know, you've got to arrange things to make it work for the family in the long run. And so the princess is betrothed to the dragon. That's how it was in the old patriarchal days, by the way. You know, this is who you will marry. Um, she's a bit concerned about this, the princess. Um, in fact, very, very concerned and doesn't know what to do, but tries to get out of it, can't, and realizes the wedding's going to happen. So she goes out in the countryside to find the old wise woman, the shamaness who lives at the edge of the woods and who people go to when they're in trouble because it's the person who carries the ancient wisdom. And she says, come, come, sit down to the princess. I can help you. Whew, thank you. Somebody knows. She said, I'll tell you a secret of what you need to do. She said, on your wedding day, which is coming up, you must buy and wear 10 wedding gowns. She explains a little bit more, which you'll find out as the story goes on. And she said, it'll all be all right. Now, I know, having been, have, being the father of a daughter, I've learned a lot about dresses. I didn't know. I used to think that it mattered a lot who you married. Now I discover that it's really the dress that's the central thing in the wedding. But that's, that's a whole other story, right? Anyway, leaving that aside. So, the wedding takes place. There's the trumpets and all the people coming into the palace and the king and queen, and then the dragon appears, a little fire breathing, you know, everyone's impressed, and then they get their, have their, have their ceremony, and then it's wedding night, and they're in the bridal chamber, I believe it's called, and um, the dragon says, well, to this beautiful princess, well, I guess it's time to consummate the marriage. And she says, yes, indeed, I'm looking forward to it. And the dragon says, um, oh, and she says, yes, but I think I should take off my wedding gown first. And the dragon says, indeed, quite happily. She said, but I'd like to ask a favor of you. As I remove a wedding gown, I would like you also to remove your clothing so that we can be naked together in some beautiful way. So she takes off a wedding gown. And the dragon, you know, is basically a grown-up serpent. And serpents shed their skin. It's not a big deal. Snakes do it all the time. So she takes off a wedding gown, and he takes off a layer of outer skin. No problem. Okay, honey. And then he looks, and she has another wedding gown on. And she says, ah, yes, I have to take this one off, too. And then so he takes off the next layer, which is a little harder, right? And then he looks, and she has another. And gradually, layer by layer by layer, finally he's using his claws because she takes on, she says, yeah, I'm there for you, honey, but you just have to open yourself a little bit to me, right? Little by little, until by the end of the story, you know how these stories end. He's tearing off more and more of the dragon skin with his claws, and underneath is revealed an enchanted prince who was, <laughs> you know, enchanted by whoever, um, and they live happily ever after. So that's the end of the story, okay? This is a meditation story from you, cross-cultural. <laughs> but there's something true about it, and part of Goenka's teachings, he emphasized purity a lot. And I have a little trouble with the emphasis on purity as a translation, because it can easily fit into the Christian or Hindu or whatever ideas of what's pure and impure, that you're born in sin and you're impure and you, can, you, know, you have to redeem yourself in certain ways or there's original sin. And in Buddhism, the closest, best um, complement to that, I would call original goodness. Your original nature is actually pure and beautiful. So there is a kind of shedding as you sit your fears, your worries, your attachments, the 
tension you carry in your body as you sweep your attention through your body over and over again and bring mindfulness to what's there, things become released like the skins of the dragon. And then what comes as purity is not that you become pure, you know, and other people are impure, but rather it's a kind of purity of perception, innocence, the child of the spirit. Suzuki Roshi called it most famously beginner's mind, that you can see afresh. Rachel Rachel Carlson, the great naturalist, said, if I had influence over the good fairy who is supposed to preside over the birth of all children, I should ask one favor, that her gift to each child in the world would be a sense of wonder so indestructible it would last throughout time. And so purity in the deepest sense means really a purity of perception, of seeing the beauty behind the eyes of every being you meet, of the, of the biosphere of the trees and the water and the value of every being and the um, mystery of life that you've been born into. And it happens. And you see people at the end of retreats here, we call it the Vipassana facelift, back, basically. <laughs> people come out of retreat and their faces look clear and their eyes are shining. It's like they've been bathed somehow inside and there's this luminosity. Um, now, today is also a holiday. It used to be called Columbus Day, as I recall. It may still be, or maybe it's Indigenous People Day. Um, uh, there's an amazing story that I have also put in one of the books I did years ago, the book of Stories of the Spirit, by a man named Nuno Cabeza de Vaca. Um, and he was a conquistador who went by mistake to Florida looking for a city of gold, but Florida didn't have that. Anyway, and most everyone on his ship died, but a few, he and a couple of his companions were left. They were taken in some way taken prisoner by the Indians or the natives who lived there um, and asked to do some healing. And somehow they, were, they had enough knowledge to become good healers. And they were passed from tribe to tribe. And he describes in his journal a walk from Florida to Mexico City that took several years from tribe to tribe. He actually wrote a journal to the king of Spain at that point, it was, you know, in the early 1500s, not that long after um, Cortes and the conquistadors. Um, and the most kind of amazing part of it, there's a lot, some of it's heartbreaking, some of it's really revelatory, is when he gets back to see, to Mexico City where the conquerors have come in and taken over what was left of the Aztec Empire. And he's now wearing um, deerskin and barefoot and wearing the clothes and garb of the native people and speaking their language and having walked in their footsteps and eaten their food and lived their lifestyle. And then he sees these guys on horseback in armor with swords and he's horrified. He says they look like the devils who've come to, you know, punish and, and destroy rather than someone who's come to engage a people in some way or learn. So um, what he sees actually there is he's able to see that culture and civilization from which he came now with beginner's mind. He's not in it, he's like, he's stepped out of it. And he writes this long and kind of remarkable letter to the king of Spain saying, Your Majesty, you have to understand what it looks like to the people who are already here. And you have to understand the consequences of what you're doing. It's really kind of an amazing story. So something happens in the meditation, and it happens even when we sit for half an hour or an hour and you quiet yourself. It's as if, yes, all the layers want to be felt and opened and they take their time. But underneath it, you come back to a place of awareness that can see with fresh eyes and with understanding and with beginner's mind or innocence. And 
my teacher Ajahn Chah, I often tell this story, he had um, done the first ten or more years of ascetic training in the forest monasteries of Thailand and Laos and living in caves along the Mekong River Valley and doing all these austerities. And then he went to the greatest meditation master of the time, to this Ajahn, and told him about his practices and trainings and dissolving his body into light and having visions and understandings and insights and all these things. Um, and he said, I want to tell you about my meditation and you can help me. And the master listened to all this and then shook his head and said, you've missed the point. You've missed the point. I said, I have? He said, yeah, those are just experiences. You know, dissolving your body into light or having a deep insight or some beautiful inner experience and so forth. He said, that's just like the movies. You go to a romantic comedy or a, a war movie or a, you know, a great um, a documentary or a musical or whatever it happens to be. He said, they're always changing. That's the changing conditions of mind. He said, but the only critical question is, to whom do these happen? Who is the one that's seeing these movies? Turn your attention from the screen back, just as you can see the projector and the light and realize that the movie, you get lost in it, isn't so real. He said, turn your attention back to the one who knows, to the pure awareness, or what I called loving awareness earlier, and inhabit that. Become the consciousness itself that the, the witnessing to all things. And from the place of witnessing, then you can move through this world with attention and love and liberation. And this is equally the invitation of Goenka. Because what happens in those retreats, or in the retreats that we offer here, is more and more you see the impermanence of things, thoughts, feelings, sensations. Everything is a river changing you see the insecurity of it, dukkha. That human incarnation, yours, mine, I think yours, I'll check it out, is comprised of praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, sweet and sour, night and day, birth and death. Anybody not have that? Just checking here, okay? So that you can either accept this is the way incarnation and duality of living a human life is, and then find wisdom in it. Say, all right, it's going to be changing, as Goenka would chant, impermanent, impermanent, sometimes pleasant, sometimes painful, sometimes beautiful, sometimes not beautiful, sometimes praise, sometimes blame. And the invitation was to find the space of awareness that is the great heart of equanimity, the peacefulness behind the dance. Or as Zen master Suzuki Roshi says, when you realize the fact that everything changes and find your composure in it, there you find yourself in nirvana. Nirvana isn't someplace else. It's not in the Himalayas. You can save yourself an air ticket, right? <laughs> In the moment when you realize the fact that everything changes, that life is a stream, an outpouring, a river, and become the witnessing, find your composure, the space of awareness itself, then you find yourself in nirvana. Or as it said, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. Now, Goenka's teacher, Uba Kin, was a, was a layman in, 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 um, in Burma who had found a meditation master himself that um, he'd learned the practices of mindful attention and inner freedom. Um, and Uba Kin was an interesting character because he was like Goenka. He was from a family that was involved in business. Um, and after he did his training in meditation, he also worked in government service. And when Burma became independent in 1949, I believe it was, he was appointed minister of 
that um, I think he was the head of the Treasury Department. Then he was also became head of their equivalent of the taxation and IRS department. He became head of tra transportation. He had like four different ministries that he was the head of all at the same time. And he would go into the office of the Burmese IRS in the morning, where that he was the head of, gather all the people there, and make them sit in meditation before they started their day, and then take the Buddhist precepts to not kill and steal and lie and so forth, and then they could do their, their day of work. Just picture this in Washington for a second. You've got to get the image, right? Quite extraordinary man. So Goenka found him as a teacher um, and learned this possibility of living in freedom no matter praise and blame, gain and loss, sickness and health, all the changes that happen in human life, to become the, the equanimity, the, the, the witnessing, the loving awareness. And in doing so, then he began to wed together not just the awareness itself, but the love that grows out of it. When you pay deep attention, you also fall in love with the world. You just do. And in the early days, for Goenka and for our retreats, we used to teach loving-kindness meditation, metta as a practice, more on the side or toward the end of retreats. Now we begin with it. Because people sit, and in be, being present for yourself, the awareness needs to be wedded to compassion, needs to be wedded to forgiveness, needs to be wedded to kindness. And when they are, then it's as if you've got the right components for the body to open and the heart to flower and the mind to relax and to really rest in your own Buddha nature. I want to read you another poem as we get closer to the end of the evening. This is from one of my favorite poets who lives in Santa Cruz, Ellen Bass, called Gate C-22. At Gate C-22 in the Portland airport, a man in a broad-band leather hat kissed a woman arriving from Orange County. They kissed and kissed and kissed. Long after the other passengers clicked the handles of their carry-ons and wheeled briskly toward the short-term parking, the couple stood there, arms wrapped around each other, like she'd just staggered off the boat at Ellis Island, like she'd been released from the ICU, snapped out of a coma, survived bone cancer, made it down from Annapurna in only the clothes she was wearing. Neither of them was young. His beard was gray. She carried a few extra pounds you could imagine her saying she had to lose. But they kissed lavish kisses, like the ocean in the early morning, the way it gathers and swells, sucking each rock under, swallowing it again and again. We were all watching. <laughs> Passengers waiting for the delayed flight to San Jose, the stewardesses, the pilots, the aproned woman icing Cinnabons, the man selling sunglasses. We couldn't look away. We could taste the kisses crushed in our mouths. But the best part was his face. When he drew back and looked at her, his smile soft with wonder, almost as though he were a mother still open from giving birth, as your mother must have looked at you no matter what happened after, if she beat you or left you or you're lonely now. You once lay there, the vernix not yet wiped off, and someone gazed at you as you were the first sunrise seen from Earth. The whole wing of the airport hushed, all of us trying to slip into that woman's middle-aged body, her plaid Bermuda shorts, sleeveless blouse, glasses, little gold hoop earrings, tilting our heads up. And there's something so beautiful about living in the reality of the present. The invitation of awareness of the training that Goenka offered and that we offer here and that has come down in so many traditions and lineages of the power of presence and mindfulness that's wedded with love, of loving awareness, to step out of the small sense of self and live more fully in the reality of the present. 
um, with wisdom, with graciousness, with ease. It's in you. There's a, a, an amazing description of Zen Master Suzuki Roshi, the founder of San Francisco Zen Center, in the introduction to the Zen Mind Beginner's Mind. It says, the Roshi is a person who's actualized that perfect freedom, which is the potential for you and all human beings. He exists, or she, freely in the fullness of their whole being. The flow of their consciousness is not the fixed, repetitive patterns of our usual self-centered world, but arises spontaneously from the actual circumstances of the present. The results of this, in terms of the quality of life, are extraordinary. Buoyancy, vigor, straightforwardness, simplicity, humility, serenity, joyousness, uncanny perspicacity, and unfathomable compassion. Quite a phrase, uncanny perspicacity and unfathomable compassion. Their whole being testifies to what it means to live in the reality of the present. And this is really the invitation to you. It's not an imitation. It's not paying homage to someone else, although I am delighted to pay homage to Goenka Suzuki Roshi, these other wonderful teachers. But the only value really, and the only thing they would want would be to look at you and say, you too, and you, and you, and you. You can awaken, you can open your heart, you can live in the reality of the present. You can find both the equanimity that gives you spaciousness and freedom, this great perspective in mystery, to rest in consciousness rather than in the drama. And then you fall in love with the world. Then you're at that gate, C-22. <laughs> and every person you meet is your sister and your brother because it's your world that's not separate from you. And you love it and tend it and work for justice and care for it and plant gardens. And you also walk in the mountains and sit by the ocean and have the mystery of birth and death around you and know that it's your home, that you have this gift to be alive in it. The Buddha's instructions. Live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still. Free from fear and attachment, know the sweet joy of living in the way. And the way is capitalized here as it's the Tao, it's wisdom, it's the great heart of understanding, it's love, you know what it is. Let's sit.
There's something very sweet about sitting in the dark with hundreds of people being silent. It's kind of magic, is, you know, because it's not just silent, but it's a kind of pregnant silence, a silence also full of presence. So carry whatever is of value from your meditation or from these words or teachings to bless yourself and what you touch in this world as you leave. <clears throat> One last announcement. Next Monday, Norman Fisher, who was abbot of San Francisco Zen Center, a wonderful teacher is coming. And later in the month on the 28th, on Monday night, Ayatata Loka, who is this amazing, delicious, fine um, Buddhist nun as a teacher, will be teaching in the upper retreat hall, and I commend her to you as well. And thank you for coming and listening, your generosity and your care, and drive politely out there. It's crowded. And um, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.